Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Are Christians too judgmental? That's a question we're going to talk about today. We're also going to talk about why did God create at all? Why, why, why are we even here? And where do you go when you die? Do you go right to heaven? Is there an intermediate state? What happens if you're a believer? And by the way, Jesus said we can ask anything of him. What does he mean by this? Really? Anything? Uh, these are some of the questions that you've emailed me recently. And our email address, if you have a question that you'd like me to try and address, is hello at crossexamined.org. Hello at crossexamined.org. There are many other questions, and I don't know if we'll get to all of them today, but uh, I'm trying to answer some of you directly via email and some I'm answering here on the program for the benefit of others. But let me also point out that many of the questions that are asked, we've spent entire programs on here at, uh, here at this podcast, at this radio program. And if you don't have our app, you need to get it because my uh, colleague, Jorge Gill, has done a wonderful job of making this app very user-friendly, where you can go back and look up different topics that we've covered uh, over several years and just listen to the program uh, right off your iPhone, right off your Droid, right off your iPad uh, through this app, the Cross-Examined app. Two words in the App Store, Cross-Examined. And I just happened to be paging through some of the programs we've done, just say over the past year or so, and so many of these programs are full-length programs that treat some of the questions you're asking via email. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer some of these questions that you've sent me today, but in a brief way. If you want more in-depth answers to some of these questions, you can go back and listen to some of these programs. Now, when we try and do a radio program, typically, or, or a radio program slash podcast, we're trying to do an evergreen program. What do I mean by that? What I mean by it, it is we're not always dealing with the with the topics of the day also, although sometimes we'll, we'll talk about that. Most of the time, the programs that we're doing here are timeless in the sense that we're not covering current events. We're covering events or uh, issues that are timeless or evergreen. We're covering questions that people have asked for centuries, not, not, not just that people are asking on Snapchat today or questions that uh, are dealing with current events. We're dealing with issues that are thousands of years old. And so you can listen to these podcasts even four, five, six, seven, eight years ago, and they'll still be relevant today. What are some of the issues that we've covered that you can get on the app? If, if you look up our, our cross-examined app and you click on uh, podcasts, you'll see with over the past year, we've covered issues like Jesus and the case for war. We've covered uh, the resurrection. We've covered, is Jesus God? We've covered why everybody discriminates. Uh, that's more of a, 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 a current event, but it's still applicable today, obviously. Does love equal aff affirmation? You know, our culture tries to tell us that in order to love somebody, you have to affirm what they do. Is that really true? Well, we have an entire program devoted to that. 
from August 5th of last year. Uh, we have uh, Why Does God Allow Evil? We had Clay Jones on the program of August of last year. Uh, we've got Why Does God Allow Natural Disasters? That's from uh, September of last year. We've got Is the Old Testament Binding on Christians? That's October of last year. We had uh, Dan Wallace talking about a textual criticism. How do we know that the New Testament documents were copied reliably? That's from October of last year. We've got a, a current event show with Jay Warner Wallace, uh, which is has been this issue has been going on for quite a while in our country. We, de- we, we dealt with the issue of mass shootings. You can go back and look at that. We talked about atheist contradictions and uh, a couple of programs last November. We talked about five proofs of the existence of God with Ed Fazer in his new book, Five Proofs of the Existence of God. And these are, these are proofs that, that go back centuries uh, right there. We talked about the evolution debate with uh, Jonathan Wells earlier this year. We talked about Love Thy Body with, with Nancy Piercy. That's a podcast you ought to listen to. We talked about uh, miracles. We had several programs on miracles uh, this earlier this year. One of them was uh, was with uh, Lee Strobel with his book, The Case for Miracles. We had two with Craig Keener with his two-volume magnum opus on miracles. I actually, I actually had a, a uh, podcast from, let me see when this was, just this past May. Why don't miracles happen more often? Frank, if you're saying that miracles occur, why don't, why don't they happen more often? In fact, we'll touch on that here today. We had archaeology in the Bible with uh, Craig Evans. We had uh, archaeology in Israel from our, our recent Israel trips trip. We had uh, an entire program devoted to the question, does geography determine faith? You know, you often hear people say, well, you, if you were born in Iran, you'd be a Muslim. So, you know, this geography just determines faith. You're just a Christian because you grew up in America. What about that objection? Entire program devoted to that and many other programs. In fact, uh, we've done several programs in the past two months regarding the big questions of life. So I just want to encourage you to look through the podcasts and again, cross-examined two words in the app store to get the app for the iPhone or the iPad or the Droid. I don't know how, I don't have a Droid, so I don't know how you guys get apps there, but wherever you get apps, it's two words, cross-examined. Last week, we did a program on Mormons. How do you, how do you uh, talk about uh, the good news with Mormons? And they're going to come to your door, so you might as well be ready. So before you send me an email, you may want to – and by the way, I don't mind you sending me an email. I'm just saying you may want to investigate uh, to see if the question you're asking has already been dealt with on a podcast. So let's now delve into some of these questions that you've brought up via email recently. And one of them comes from uh, Justin, who asks, hey, my name is Justin. I'm a big fan of your show. I listen to your podcast every week, and I love your app. It's very helpful. Well, thanks, Justin. That's what I was just uh, speaking about. The reason why I'm writing is, is to you is because I, I, I'm teaching uh, a church class, and uh, the, the lesson of uh, the, uh, the title lesson is, Are Christians Too Judgmental? I would appreciate any advice you could give me on how to teach this, and uh, please email me. Uh, email me your response. I hope to hear from you soon. Well, first of all, when you're going to teach a class on what, what it means to be judgmental, and, or if someone accuses you of being judgmental, what should you do? Well, the first thing you should ask is, what do you mean by judgmental? <laughs> right? I mean, ask for clarification. Because the truth of the matter is, everyone makes judgment. It, it makes judgments. In fact, if somebody says to you, you're being too judgmental, they are making a judgment by saying that. 
by making the accusation. So you always ought to ask the question, what do you mean by judgmental? Uh, because, again, everybody's making a judgment. Even to call you judgmental is a judgment. If they say don't make judgments, you ought to say, then why are you, why are you judging me for judging? It's a self-defeating claim to say don't make judgments. Now, people will quote Jesus, who said, judge not, but they'll stop right there because that's not the entire quotation, as you know. Jesus said, judge not, lest you be judged. By the same standard you judge others, you be judged by that standard. So before you try and take the speck out of your brother's eye, you hypocrite, take the log out of your own eye first. Now, is Jesus telling us not to judge here? No, he's actually telling us to judge. Why? He's telling us to take the speck out of our brother's eye. That involves making a judgment. He's simply saying, don't be hypocritical about judging. If you've got that problem in your life, get it out of your life first so you can better help your brother. So this is not a command not to judge. It's actually a command on how to judge. Don't judge hypocritically. In fact, in John 7, 24, Jesus says, stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. And see, that's the problem. We're judgmental because we judge by mere appearances. We don't make a right judgment. We don't get all the evidence. We make snap judgments. You see, making a judgment is evaluating an action or a statement as right or wrong, true or false. But being judgmental is having a graceless attitude of superiority toward others where you make snap judgments and put yourself in the best light and them in the worst. And we're going to unpack this more after the break. Don't go away. And we'll get to some of those other questions I mentioned earlier. You're listening to Cross-Examine with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network website, crossexamine.org, app, crossexamine, two words in the app store, downloaded. Over 168,000 people have downloaded it. I guess they're finding it helpful. We're back in two. Don't go away. Thank you for listening to the Cross-Examine podcast. This material is made available to you for free by the contributions of listeners like you. If you wish to support future podcasts, just go to crossexamine.org and click on the donate button or simply use the donate feature directly on our app. Thanks. Coming up on August 24th out in San Jose, California, I'll be debating Dr. Michael Shermer, who uh, is a skeptic and atheist whom I've debated before, by the way. Uh, you can see the debate on our website for free, crossexamine.org. Uh, we're going to be debating what best explains reality, atheism or theism. And uh, the reason we debate that rather than does God exist is because when you do just does God exist, it sounds like the theist has all the burden of proof and the atheist just has to shoot holes in the theist theories. But when you say what best explains reality, then it's obvious that both parties have the burden of proof to show why they why, why their worldview best explains reality as it is. So I'm looking forward to that debate. It's going to be at Westgate Church, the Saratoga campus out there in San Jose, California. Then I'm doing another event the next night at a local church in San Jose. And then down in Gilroy, Sunday, the 26th, that's South Valley Community Church. Great church down there in Gilroy. Been there several times. They run an apologetic series every August. And I'm privileged to be a part of it again this August. So all those details are on our website, crossexamined.org. Click on events and you will see uh, Frank Turk calendar. Check that out there. Before that, we're going to be doing the Cross-Examined Instructors Academy, CIA down in Dallas. That's closed already. We have already have enough people coming to that. And that's when uh, me and a whole bunch of apologists come together to try and train 
people on how to present the evidence for Christianity, uh, people like Greg Kokel, Jay Warner Wallace, Bobby Conway, uh, Sean McDowell, Natasha Crane, and many others uh, are down there in Dallas. And so for those of you who are going to be there, look forward to seeing you there. Now, let's go back to our questions today. We were talking about, are Christians too judgmental? Well, that really depends on what you mean by judgmental. And as we mentioned before, if you're making snap judgments and you have some sort of attitude of superiority uh, about you, yeah, you're probably too judgmental. Now, everyone makes judgments, but we ought not be judgmental. Jesus went after judgmental people. And in his day, those were the Pharisees. And who were the Pharisees? Well, they were the religious and political leaders of Israel. Remember, they ran Israel. Rome delegated much of the authority to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. And they were made up of Sadducees and Pharisees. And Sadducees were the people who didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were Sadducees. See, this is sophisticated theology here. And the Pharisees did believe in the resurrection, and they jointly held positions on the Sanhedrin, and they made many of the laws for Israel. And Jesus went after these people. Are you telling me Jesus got involved in politics? Yes! And by the way, he wasn't so nice doing it. By the way, time out here. I got I to gotta digress for just a second. I was at church uh, the other day, and I uh, heard a, a, a preacher say, I could care less what's going on in Washington, right? You couldn't find a person who could care less. Now, on a, in, in a certain sense, I, 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 I get it. You know, <laughs> his primary role is to preach the gospel and to shepherd his people. That's his primary role. But for any pastor to say he doesn't care what happens politically, you know what I say to him? I guess you don't really care about the gospel then. What? No, I do care about the gospel. That's why I don't care about what goes on in politics. Yeah, problem here. Here's the problem. Politics affects your ability to preach the gospel, at least legally. I mean, what do you think this preacher would say if the folks up in Washington decided to make Christianity illegal or to take his tax-exempt status away from him as he preaches? What do you think he'd, he'd, go, well, he'd suddenly go, well, wait, I guess, I guess stuff that does happen in Washington is important. Yes, in fact, politics affects everything we do. Now, I'm not saying this is our, necessarily our primary priority. It's not. But it certainly is a priority that you have to be involved politically to ensure that good is done and not evil. And if for no other reason, to keep our ability to freely practice Christianity, which includes preaching the gospel. So don't overstate the case. If you want to say that, well, politics isn't my thing or I'm not all that interested in it, well, okay, fine. But you ought to, have, you ought to be somewhat interested in it because it affects everything you do every day if you think about it. It affects your home. It affects your security. It affects your health care. It affects how much money you pay in taxes. It affects the laws that are or, it, or these laws that are made affects just about everything you do. So you, you have to be involved in it to a certain extent. And you're not a good shepherd if you completely discount it or say, don't get involved in it. In fact, that's one reason why countries go bad is because good people aren't involved in the government. If you take all the godly influence out of government, you get a godless government. And that hurts people. In fact, you ought to be involved in politics just because you want good done to people and not evil. Just because you want life protected. Just because you want 
children protected by protecting the institution of marriage because you 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 don't want it you don't want to make it easy for people to get a, a divorce too easily why because children are hurt i mean there are many things you ought to be about you you want to make sure that we prosecute sex offenders you want i mean there's so much that happens in the political realm that you ought to be concerned about as a christian or just as a good citizen all right sorry for that digression Jesus was involved in politics. He went after the politicians. And what did he say to these people? He wasn't very nice, Jesus. In fact, if you, if, if you've probably heard, you've, you've probably heard people say, well, that person has never said a bad word about anyone. That person is a saint. Well, if that's the definition of a saint, Jesus was no saint. I mean, just think about what Jesus said to these Pharisees. If you think he was a nice guy who never said a bad word about anyone, you have not read either John chapter 8 or Matthew chapter 23. What did he say in John chapter 8 to these Pharisees, these political and religious leaders? He said, your father is the devil. Jesus, you can't say that. That's not very Christ-like. What? <laughs> Jesus said it. <laughs> Imagine you're talking to somebody. and You go, your father is the devil. Jesus called people out. Who needed to be called out? Now, maybe maybe we don't always have the insight of Jesus. I, I, let me admit that. And you don't want to make snap judgments. But if you realize that somebody is, is really serving Satan in the sense that they, are, that they are advocating evil positions, you need to call them out. In fact, Paul actually called people out. In fact, the same pastor who I was mentioning earlier uh, this past week actually gave a sermon where he called names out of people who were teaching false doctrine. He, he said, Joel Osteen's teaching false doctrine, Joyce Myers teaching false doctrine, Kenneth Hagan, or all these word of faith preachers. They're teaching false. He came out and said it. And a lot of people were, Oh, oh you can't name people. Paul named people in the gospel, or I should say in his writings. Paul said, stay away from Alexander. He's done wrong. He named somebody else. I don't have him in front of me. I don't have the name in front of me. But in his writings, Paul's naming false teachers. Why? Because false teachers can lead people astray. Jesus said, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. Stay away from these people. They're teaching falsely. In fact, this same pastor a number of years ago, said this. He said, whenever I name people as teaching false doctrine, I get emails. I get emails from people saying, oh, you shouldn't name people. That's not very nice. Just preach Jesus. Well, he came out the next week and he said, suppose I were to say to you, um, I've discovered there are people in our church who are introducing your children to pornography and drugs. What would your first question be to me? Who are these people? Well, suppose I were to say, oh, I can't tell you who, but I'll tell you what I will do. I'll just preach Jesus. <laughs> what would you do? You'd wring my neck. You'd say, I need to know who these people are so I can keep my kids away from them. Exactly. Yeah, sometimes you got to name false teachers because they're leading people astray. And you as a shepherd need to keep the wolves away from the sheep. That's what you need to do. That's what Jesus was doing. He was making judgments, keeping people 
away from the sheep. Now, he wasn't doing this with an attitude of superiority, and he wasn't making snap judgments. He was just telling people the truth. And of course, in Matthew 23, when he said, you're, you're vipers, you're whitewashed tombs, you go a mile to make a convert, and then once you make them a convert, you make them twice as much a son of hell as you are? Yeah, Jesus said that. So, can Christians be judgmental? Of course, and we want to avoid that. In fact, someone said this. Someone said, evangelism is just one beggar showing another beggar where the food is. Let me say that again. Evangelism is just one beggar showing another beggar where the food is. So if you have this element of superiority in your attitude, that since you're a Christian, you're better than everyone else. Yeah, you can just dispense with that right now. Your righteousness comes from Christ, not from yourself. In fact, if it came from yourself, you wouldn't need Christ. Christ brings us our righteousness. We're just trying to show other people where the food is, other beggars where the food is. Now, here's the thing about Jesus. When he scolded people, somehow they understood that he still cared for them. And that's, that's very hard to do. That when you come out against a behavior of somebody, that you're doing it out of love. Paul says, love always protects. Which means you've got to stand against evil that people want to do. It's not all about affirm, affirming what people want to do, contrary to that. It's actually saying, I'm going to stand in the way of the evil you want to do because it's going to hurt you and it's going to hurt others. That's what a true loving person does. That's what a parent does. A parent who, who allows his or her child to do everything the child wants is not a loving parent. The parent has to stand in the way, much like a pastor needs to stand in the way of evil to protect his congregation. A shepherd stands in the way of the wolf to protect his sheep. That's what we're supposed to do. And Jesus did that somehow. Now, by the way, one last thing on judging. <laughs> when people say, oh, don't make judgments, as I said earlier, they're making a judgment, point out that it's self-defeating to say don't make judgments. But did you ever notice this? I've noticed this recently. That when, you ever, you ever notice that when you compliment someone, which is a judgment, nobody gets upset? Like if you say to somebody, you know, you're really a wonderful person. I really love you. You're such a great person. I wish I could be like you. Do you think your friend's going to say, who do you think you are? Are you judging me? Do you think you're worse than me? No, your friend's never going to say that. You see, I've noticed that people don't really have a problem with judgments. They just have a problem with judgments they don't like. And if you tell somebody something that's true and they don't like it, you're just over the target. What do I mean by that? You always get more flack when you're over the target. If you're telling somebody something that's true and they're, they're mad at you, you just help convict them. As Augustine said, we love the truth when it enlightens us. We hate the truth when it convicts us. So we got to make judgments without being judgmental. All right, we'll get to more questions right after the break. You're listening to Frank Turek on Cross Examined with Frank Turek. See you in two minutes. College campuses are hostile to the Christian faith, and three out of four young people walk away from the church once they go to college. That's why we go to college campuses and present I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist in the United States and even all over the world. When we do this, 
We don't charge students a dime. That's why we need your financial support. In fact, over the past couple of years, we've been able to grow dramatically because of your generous support. And 100% of your donations go to ministry. Zero percent go to building. So when you give to Cross-Examined, you'll be giving to help us go reach young people where they are. Would you consider giving today? Thank you so much, and thank you so much for what you've done already. So everybody makes judgments, ladies and gentlemen. The only question is, are your judgments true? And by the way, we talk a lot more about that in the new online course coming out in September. It's called Fearless Faith. It's myself, Jay Warner Wallace, the cold case homicide detective, and Dr. Mike Adams, the University of North Carolina at Wilmington professor that, by the way, <laughs> became a conservative after he got tenure, became a Christian and sued his university for failing to promote him uh, once he became a Christian. And he actually won that particular judgment and is a beacon on that campus down there. Anyway, the three of us will teach you how to get a fearless faith and how to prepare yourself for high school, college, or just the workforce. That particular course, Fearless Faith, begins September 4th. If you want to be a part of the premium class, which I think you do, because if you do, you'll uh, we'll have seven sessions, uh, live sessions via Zoom video, where you can ask us questions live. Uh, but you got to be part of the premium course, not the basic course to be a part of that. So go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses, and you'll see the Fearless Faith course coming up in September. Great for anyone, but particularly homeschoolers, high schoolers, college people, people that want to do better with their faith at the uh, at the water cooler at work. Check it all out. Uh, Fearless Faith. All right. We're talking about uh, some questions you've asked today. Uh, Another question that I got uh, recently is from Jacob, who asked, uh, why did God create humanity? Why did he make a decision to create the universe when he did? And uh, Jacob's been watching YouTube and Facebook and agree with a lot of what you say, he says, but I've been listening to your podcast, which I think is awesome. Well, thanks. Thanks, Jacob. And thanks to Jorge Gill for making the podcast look so good on our app uh, and uh, on Uh, the website as well, crossexamine.org. Now, why did God create humanity? You know, this is one of the more difficult questions to answer, actually. Let me me say what what the answer isn't. You may have heard some people say, well, God created because he was lonely. Nonsense. God had love from all eternity in the Trinity. In fact, the Trinity solves problems. It doesn't create problems. The Trinity is a plurality in the unity of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons in one divine essence. And you could have eternal love in a trinity. You can't have it in a purely monotheistic being. Who is there to love? Nobody. But you have a loved one, a lover, and a spirit of love, or a lover, a loved one, and a spirit of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the trinity from all eternity. So God did not have to create But he chose to create because a loving being would choose to share his love with his creatures. And in Isaiah, it says God created for his glory. He didn't have to create, but he did create. And God loved us so much that after creating and after our rebellion, he decided to enter the bloodstream of humanity to save us from our own rebellion. That's really the story of Christianity. 
The story of reality is what Greg Kokel would call it in his book, The Story of Reality, a great book you want, might want to get if you want to kind of want an overview of what Christianity is. That paradise lost in Genesis is paradise regained in Revelation. Everything in between is the story of redemption, that God comes to earth, enters the bloodstream of humanity to save the very creatures who rebelled against him. Because he's infinitely just, he can't allow sin to go unpunished. But since he's infinitely loving, he finds a way to allow sinners to go unpunished. What does he do? He puts the punishment on himself, a perfect substitute in our place. That's the story of Christianity. Somebody sacrifices himself for us, and it's God himself who adds humanity to his deity, comes to earth, and lives the perfect life in our place. That's the story of Christianity. Now, he didn't have to create, but as a loving being, he did create, and he did for his glory. So it's a great question, Jacob. It's a, it's, 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 I don't have a lot of detail on the question because God didn't have to create, but he did say that he created for his glory, and God is magnified. That's what it means to bring God glory. God is magnified when we consider that he created us and that he came to save us and took our punishment on himself. Another question comes from Ben Johnson says, uh, where does a person go when they die? If they believe in Jesus, I've heard several different positions such as you immediately go to heaven or you die and are in an unconscious state until the rapture. Well, you're not in an unconscious state. That's certainly true. Paul talks about being absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. Jesus says to the thief on the cross next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. But it is true that the final state isn't set when you die. The final state is at the end of time um, when, when God will ultimately separate the sheep from the goats and there will be an eternal divide between heaven and hell. Uh, and heaven will turn out to be a physical place. These heavens and the earth will be recreated. What was lost in Genesis is regained in revelation and we will have physical bodies, uh, physical glorified bodies that won't decay like Jesus's resurrection body. We don't get that when we die, we are absent from the body, but present from or present with the Lord. So in some sense we are, Conscious, not unconscious, we're conscious, but absent our bodies when we die before uh, the end of time. Then at the end, our bodies will be reunited with our souls and we will live in a physical place. So when you die, you do go to be with the Lord, but not with your physical body that comes later. So when a person dies today, they do, if, if they're trusting in Christ, uh, they do go to be with the Lord and those that don't are separated from the Lord in a place called Hades. And more of this, of course, is in Luke chapter 16. If you want to read, uh, which I don't think is a real power parable. It is to a certain extent, but it's not in another extent because it, there's actual names given in it. Uh, the rich man and Lazarus, you can read the story there. There is a great gulf fixed between the two endpoints heaven and hell. And whether you want to call it heaven and hell at this point, some will, will say, well, it's really Hades and Abraham's bosom. Okay. We can argue over that. But the main point is, is that when you die now, you're in a conscious state in paradise with the Lord. And later on, you'll get your resurrection body. If you're a believer, if not, you know, you'll get a, you'll get a resurrected body, but it's going to be a body that will be separated from the Lord 
in hell. Look, if God exists, and he does, and if there is an afterlife, and there is, there's only two possible destinations. You're either going to be with God, that's heaven, or you're going to be separated from God, that's hell. And the Bible uses all sorts of different ways of describing hell. They're metaphors to a certain extent, because in one sense it says there'll be burning on the other hand, or fire, and the other hand they'll, they'll, it'll say there'll be darkness, outer darkness. Well, it would seem to be difficult to have both fire and darkness at the same time. So it seems to be these are metaphors to communicate destruction, that you are in a destroyed but still conscious state separated from uh, the ultimate form of goodness or the ultimate standard of goodness, and that's God's nature. So people say, why would God send people to hell? He doesn't send them there. You send yourself there because you don't want God now. You don't want God in eternity either. God's not going to force you into heaven against your will. If you don't want him now, you're not going to want him in eternity. So you're either going to be with God, heaven, or you're going to be separated from God, hell. Um, And that's going to be based on what you do with Jesus, whether you accept him or reject him. As C.S. Lewis famously said, there's only two kinds of people in the world. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. And you might be separated from all eternity if you want your will done. Uh, I got a, another email from a gentleman by the name of Dave Donis. And Dave, I remember as one of my ROTC midshipmen when I taught at George Washington University over 25 years ago. He says, I'm so happy to say I'm once again a student of yours. I was sitting in my 737 cockpit solving the complexity of the universe with a fellow pilot when your name came up. He said, I did not know you were teaching. He mentioned you had a YouTube channel and a book. By the way, our YouTube channel is Turek Video. I didn't set that up. Other people did, but it's called Turek Video. It's not crossexamine.org. It was set up years ago. And so if you want to be a part of that, you could subscribe. We're putting out several YouTube videos a, a week. Uh, many of them are Q&A videos you can share with others, short Q&A videos from the college campus. So sign up for that. Also, like our Facebook pages, uh, crossexamine.org and Dr. Frank Turek, Dr. Frank Turek, and you'll get not only these videos we post, but you'll get when we stream our college events live. And by the way, I keep digressing, sorry. We are going to stream, at least we're going to try and stream, the Michael Shermer debate out in California on August 24th. So hopefully those of you who can't be there can actually see it. But you won't see it unless you uh, like our Facebook pages, crossexamine.org and Dr. Frank Turek. Anyway, going back to Dave's a letter. He said, I thoroughly enjoyed, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. I've been especially enjoying the podcast too. I listened during PT. PT is a physical training. It's the uh, military acronym for that. Uh, I listen here, here, great work. Da, 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 da. One question I have on how to address a loss of faith. People question God when bad things happen. Let me stop right there. This is why the word of faith movement is so dangerous. Well, first of all, it's false teaching. Secondly, it gives people the wrong impression of who God is. They think God's a cosmic candy man. That if they just have enough faith that suddenly everything's going to go well for them. Well, that that is obviously disputed not only by a careful exegesis of Scripture, but also by the observation that Jesus and the apostles lived lives of pain and suffering, even martyrdom. Don't tell me they didn't have enough faith. No, Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Paul says, everybody who lives a a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Wow. Yeah. You know what the promise is? Persecution. 
Not that everything's going to go exactly your way. Not that you're going to get everything you want. And so when you have enough faith and you, you ask for things and you don't get what you want, you might think, well, God doesn't exist. Well, that's obviously the wrong conclusion. The right conclusion is the God in your mind doesn't exist, but the true God does. The mind that was, or I should say that the God that was, that was taught to you by these false teachers is not the true God. So Dave's question goes on to say, Jesus said that we may ask anything of him. What does he mean by this? My answer is that his answer may not look the way we think it should. Is this true? Well, yes, it is true. And what we're going to do when we come back from the break is we're going to deal with one of the most difficult passages in Scripture. Because in Mark chapter 11, it seems like Jesus says, look, if you just ask in my name and you have enough faith, I'm going to do anything you want. You're going to say, throw this mountain into the sea and it's going to go. Just don't doubt and it's going to happen. Is that really what he meant? Sure seems that way. Let's cover it when we come back from the break. You're listening to Cross-Examined with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. We're dealing with some of the questions you've emailed us at hello at crossexamined.org. So if you'd like to send us a question, send it to hello at crossexamined.org, and we'll be back in two minutes. Don't go away. If you find value in the content of this podcast, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find more. Just type Cross-Examine or Frank Turek on the search bar. Also, visit our website where we add new videos, articles, and free resources daily. Welcome back to Cross-Examined with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. If you're low on the FM dial looking for national public radio, you don't have to go any further. We're actually going to tell you the truth here. I can guarantee you NPR will not be talking about this. But we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about the question that we brought up just on the other side of the break. And that is, what does Jesus mean in Mark chapter 11? In fact, let's just read the passage here. Uh, Jesus had withered the fig tree. This is the context. We're in Mark chapter 11. And it says, in the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you have cursed is withered. What does Jesus say back? He says, have faith in God. I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen. It will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your father in heaven may forgive your sins. Wow, that seems like carte blanche, doesn't it? Yeah, it sure does. What do we what do we do with something like this? That doesn't seem right. I mean, you, you might have asked for a lot of things that you didn't get and you didn't doubt and you had faith. In fact, um, another lady wrote in and said, what about people who pray fervently for requests that are never answered like family members to be healed of diseases or for marriages to be reconciled or for a loving man to marry? What about those of us who have none of our most important and biggest prayers answered in our lifetime? 
It can very it can be very difficult to believe verses like these. Ask and you shall receive, seek and you shall find. Yeah, I I kind of agree. So what do we do with a passage like this? What does it mean? Well, I'm not smart enough to figure this all out for myself. <laughs> so um, my co-author, Dr. Norman Geister, who's much further down the road than I am, has written some fabulous books. Uh, one of them is called When Cultists Ask. And another's called When Critics Ask. Actually, When Critics Ask has been changed to a book called The Big Book of Bible Difficulties. He wrote that with Dr. Tom Howe, also a professor at our seminary, ses.edu, Southern Evangelical Seminary. And When Cultists Ask has a section that says this. After this particular verse has been read, it says, he says, on the face of it, this verse seems to be saying that God will grant literally any request we make of him, any request we make of him, as long as we believe. Word of faith, faith teachers often cite this verse to support their views. What do we do about this? Here is Geisler and, and uh, actually Ron Rhodes, who wrote this book, When Cultists Ask. Here's their re- retort to that or their, their answer to that, to that misinterpretation. Uh, they say limitations on what God will give are indicated both by the context and by other texts, as well as by the laws of God's own nature and the universe. God cannot literally give us anything. Some things are actually impossible. For example, God cannot grant a request of a creature like us to be God. Neither can he answer a request to approve of our sin. God will not give us a stone if we ask for bread, nor will he give us a serpent if we ask for a fish. They're referring to Matthew chapter 7. The context of Jesus' promise in Mark 11, and by the way, friends, context is so important. There are three rules of real estate. What are they? Location, location, location. There are three rules of biblical interpretation. What are they? Context, context, context. This is me speaking, not Geiser and Rhodes. All right, let me go back to what they say. The context of Jesus' promise in Mark 11 indicates that it was not unconditional. For the very next verse, verse 25 says, if you forgive your brother, then God will forgive your trespasses. Thus, there's no reason to believe that Jesus intended us to take his promise to give us whatever things we ask without any conditions. All difficult passages should be interpreted in harmony with other clear statements of scripture. And it is clear that God does not promise, for example, to heal everyone for whom we pray in faith. Paul wasn't healed, though he prayed earnestly and faithfully. Jesus thought that it was not the blind man's lack of faith that hindered his being healed. Rather, he was born blind that the works of God should be revealed in him, from John chapter 9. Despite Paul's divine ability to heal others, later he apparently could not heal Ephroditeus. I'm not pronouncing that rightly. Or Trometheus. It clearly was not unbelief. By the way, the two references are Philippians uh, 2.25 and 2 Timothy 4.20, if you want to look up those two individuals that Paul couldn't heal. It clearly, and by the way, let me add Timothy into that too. Paul couldn't heal Timothy. That's why I said, take a little wine for your stomach, Timothy. Anyway, back to the text. It clearly was not unbelief that brought Job's sickness on him. What is more, If the faith of the recipient were a condition for receiving a miracle, then none of the dead Jesus raised could come back to life since the dead cannot believe. 
They go on to say, the rest of scripture places many conditions on God's promise to answer prayer in addition to faith. We must abide in him and let his word abide in us, John 15, 7. We cannot ask amiss out of our own selfishness, James 4, 3. Furthermore, we must ask according to his will. This is the one that's often overlooked. It's, it's, I mean, what do we, what's, what's, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, my will be done. No, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We must ask according to his will. First John 5, 14. Even Jesus prayed, Father, if it is possible, let this cup, meaning his own death, pass from me. He said that in Matthew 26, 39. Indeed, on all except God's unconditional promises, this if it be your will, must always be stated or implied. For prayer is not a means by which God serves us. Rather, it is a means by which we serve God. Prayer is not a means by which we get our will done in heaven, but a means by which God gets his will done on earth. Now, again, that's from the book, When Cultists Ask, and uh, by Geisler and Rhodes. So they're dealing with that particular verse there. They deal with hundreds of other verses as well that cultists misinterpret to try and advance their heretical teaching. Uh, but it is a good question that Dave has asked. And so if you want more, you might pick up that book by Geisler and Rhodes. And you might also go back to the podcast that we did. Let me find it again. Uh, on May 12th of this year, 2018. Why don't miracles happen more often? We had an entire program on that because look, and it, I mean, here, here are just a few of the points we, we made on that, on that podcast. Look, if miracles were under our control, if we could, you know, simply snap our fingers and get anything we wanted, or if miracles occurred more frequently, there would actually be a number of negative things that would follow from it. And I unpack all these in that podcast. So if you want to go back and listen to it, please do. But let me just list them here. First of all, if miracles occurred routinely, we'd consider them natural events. The only reason that we can detect a miracle is because it happens rarely. And it happens against the backdrop of regular natural events. I mean, think about the resurrection of Christ. It would be ignored if miracles occurred more frequently. I mean, suppose people rose from the dead routinely. What would the resurrection of Christ mean to us? Nothing. You go to somebody, and you go, Jesus rose from the dead for your sins. And the guy goes, so what? Uncle Leroy just rose from the dead two weeks ago. Now I got to give the inheritance back. No, <laughs> the only way we recognize the resurrection as the great sign that Christianity is true is because resurrections don't occur routinely. They're extremely rare if, if they happen at all. Also, if we could simply snap our fingers and get whatever we wanted, few would die and graduate to heaven. I mean, if we could just pray in faith that people would be healed all the time, for example. Our will, not God's will. Who would ever die? Come on, leave grandma alone. She's 613 years old. She wants to go be with Jesus. <laughs> but you keep praying to keep her alive. No, at some point, people are going to graduate and go to heaven. But if we had our way, we'd never let them if we truly love them. Many choices wouldn't have consequences, right? We'd simply do something rash and uh, dangerous. We might kill somebody. We'd say, eh, no big deal. Let me just raise him from the dead. We wouldn't have any consequences. We'd become even more selfish and entitled because if we could ask in our will rather than God's will, 
then who would ever go through any difficulty? None of us would. Who would ever have any of the hard lessons that come through pain and suffering? None of us would. We'd simply snap our fingers. We'd say, God, take us out of this. We would never learn to become more like Christ because we would avoid all of the difficulty that is required to make us more like Christ. Sometimes you only get to the promised land by going through the wilderness. It's very difficult to acquire the virtues unless you go through difficulty, through pain and suffering. It's hard to develop courage unless there's danger. It's hard to develop compassion unless someone's suffering. It's hard to develop patience without obstacles in your way. It's hard to develop perseverance unless you've got to go through these obstacles and these difficulties and these struggles. The scriptures teach this. Romans chapter 5, James chapter 1, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. All over the scriptures, it says that lessons come from difficulty. Job talks about that. But if we, in our will, could snap our fingers and get whatever we wanted, we would never become more like Jesus. We'd become more I, I know I would. I would become more of a moral monster than I already am. It would become more and more about me and less and less about others and less and less about Jesus. Now, we did an entire podcast on that back on May 12th, so go back and listen to that if you want more of the details. But it's a good question that Dave has raised and this other lady has raised. I think when you reflect on it and you reflect on other scriptures and you put everything in context, you realize that Jesus is not saying that literally anything you want in your will you're going to get. It's always constrained by the will of God or it's conditioned by the will of God. And if you forgive others and several other things. Now there, are, there are other questions that uh, have come up that uh, we won't be able to get to today, but if you want to send a question in uh, just send one into hello at crossexamined.org. Hello at crossexamined.org. We'll get to it in a future program. If we can, we're also going to have uh Brett Kunkel on with his book that he wrote with John Stone Street, A Practical Guide to Culture. We have a new book from Andy Stanley. We'll interview him shortly and several other great programs. So tune back here to Cross-Examine with Frank Turek, and I will see you next week. Have a great week. God bless. We work hard to create great content and deliver truth and valuable insights to all of our cross-examined podcast listeners. If you agree, take 30 seconds out of your busy schedule to leave us a five-star rating so more people like you can find us. Just look for the Cross-Examined official podcast, three words on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. We are truly grateful for your support. 